Hello and welcome. You're listening to Nature's a Hoot with Tom Marath and Hannah Shaw, the wildlife podcast from the Hawk Conservancy Trust. As you know, we're all about birds at the Trust, but birds don't live alone. They are part of a whole ecosystem. So the podcast is our chance to take a more general look at wildlife beyond birds. If you're itching to know more about biodiversity or barn owls, or eager to explore the world of woodlands and wetlands, basically, if you like wildlife, you're in good company. And you don't need to be an expert. We've got that covered, as we're joined by some of the greatest voices in conservation to tell us more about what's happening right now in the wild world around us. Coming up in this month's episode, we're talking all about the mysterious world of bird senses. That's right, we'll be sifting the fact from the fiction in terms of what birds can see, hear, smell and taste. Stick with us as we'll be talking to biologist Simon Potier about the work he's been doing to answer these questions as part of a study at Lund University. So, Hannah, big question. How are you? And most importantly, that tadpole that you had, what became of the tadpole? Oh, no, you're shaking your head. Who knows? You don't know. I haven't seen it. I've no idea where it is. So it's not a frog, Um, then? So yesterday I had a little bit of drama. I haven't... I just... No, there's been no frog sighting. That is a shame. Nothing. So I don't know where it is. And yesterday I had a bit of drama because I thought the pond was emptying itself because I got a little solar fountain, but the solar fountain was slowly oh. emptying the pond. <laughs> so the fountain water was was squirting the water out of the pond. And I thought, oh my God, I've got a leak, but it doesn't have a leak, it's fine. Um, but I thought when I was sort of digging around to see if I could see if, if, the, uh, if the lining was ripped... Um, but I didn't see any frogs, no, sadly. What a shame. Sorry, can you hear me crunching? Yeah. <laughs> That's all right. Um, I do have some uh, fun news that I found this morning. Um, my bee barrel has got two leaf cutter bees in it. Ooh. Yeah. How, how do you know that's what they are? I'm excited about that. Well, I mean, <laughs> because they've put little bits of leaf around the end of the... Um, the end of the what is it um bamboo that's in the barrel so it's like a little one of those ready-made ones with bamboo in and two of them have got little bits of leaf stuck on the end so i think it's leaf cutter bees that is very cool i like that i like yeah. that a lot yeah how's things with you how's your how is things with me really really busy like i'm sorry to everybody at home but yes i am sat here eating a pack of hula hoops because <laughs> to that like <laughs> We record. Sorry, I'm talking my mouthful now. So, like, we organised to record the podcast, and it seems like every month we go back towards a more of a normality. Like, some things are being lifted, and we can do a few more things, which is fantastic. But that also means there's more to do. Yeah. So, at one stage when we started the podcast, it was like, well, we kind of got a bit of office work to do, and obviously we've got to keep looking after the birds. But we, I, I felt like I had more time, and now. I, we're, I'm in here, it's really warm, and I'm eating my hula hoops because I'm not going to get a chance to eat my hula hoops otherwise. Um, but it is lovely to see people at the Trust. 
Yeah. Really nice. It's feeling summery. I've just, uh, well, I'm recording this off of the back of uh, commentating for the Wings of Africa display. And to be stood out there while it's sunny and it feels like Africa and all of the African birds are flying in. That's yeah. really cool. Um, and I've just had, I've just had a few days off and we went to Bournemouth Beach. Oh, Have you been to nice. Bournemouth Beach? No, not recently. No. When I was when I was it's younger, lovely. it's lovely. It was really really nice. Um, until we were like looking for shells and things like you know this that sort of some weird thing that you do when you go to the beach and you look for things like that wash up. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we were looking for for seashells and pebble, interesting pebbles and things. And Amy, my other half, found a human tooth. What? A human tooth uh, that had been washed up, and she she like a whole she to- a whole went, like adult a tooth. whole yeah it's a like... whole adult tooth like a, it must have been a molar or something that is horrible. And, uh, she showed it to me and she said, "Is this a? Do you think this is a stone or do you think this is a tooth?" And I went, "Amy, that is a tooth. Like, please, <laughs> please throw it back into the water. It's just disgusting." She had this kind of morbid curiosity about it. it was like, "Can we take it home?" Was like, no. Someone's no, tooth. we can't take it home. Someone's tooth, and I. But then my mind thought that that tooth has got a story here yeah. on Bournemouth Beach. Like, there's me. It's like come off of some like old pirate somewhere oh, who's like selling his teeth for gold doubloons or something. But so it was. A, I'm great, but I was slightly traumatized by finding, uh, yeah, human human teeth on Bournemouth Beach. And I'm sorry if Bournemouth Beach now now gets a bad rep from. <laughs> From my tail. Do you think it was definitely a human tooth? I feel like it could have been like, um, and not a fossil. Like maybe it was a fossil from, from some oh sort. Oh God! Of... <laughs> Can you imagine? Can you imagine if it was like this really rare and exciting fossil, and I told her to throw it back in the sea? No, it's probably just someone who has um, jumped in the sea and bashed their face on a rock. <laughs> this two, is what I mean. You dropped out. <laughs> You're seeing what I mean about the stories that go on in your brain as to how does a human tooth get formed, and it could have come from anywhere, couldn't it? It could. What the rest of the human could be there somewhere. <gasps> I think we're going too far. <laughs> I also did think that. I thought we're going to be like in the middle of some sort of murder mystery here. Yeah. Imagine if you found something else. That would be awful. Yeah, well, you know, if the police were like, oh, well, you know, if anybody's found anything that they think would be suspicious, let us know. And it's like, we've just <laughs> chucked it back. Could be anywhere now. But anyway, wow. that's how my week's going. That's different. <laughs> Exciting. No tadpoles in the garden. My pond, I don't know if anything can survive in my pond, to be honest. There's so much so much uh, blanket weed on the top of my very small pond. If anybody's got any tips, actually, for tackling blanket weed on a very small area, and I think... I think part of my problem is there's not a lot of shade for it. I've let a lot of plants kind of grow up around it, but it gets a lot of sunlight. I think the best thing is to have is to have plants in there, isn't there? Cause, isn't it? Because that uses the the nitrates. Because I think too much blanket weed is from too much. Well, it's too much sun and too much uh, nitrogen oh. in the water. Well, there, yeah. Well, there are there are plants in there and like oxygenators yeah. and things. So I thought I thought I had the balance really right, hard, but. Mine gets yeah. blanket weed as well. It was really bad last year, but now my so to, is it just um, my oxygenators seem to have really gone mad. Like in 
in over the summer and grown loads and just from some floating ones right. that I flew in that flew in that I threw in obviously they've rooted or I don't know um and there's loads of them in there now and, and they there. seem to have after they there's more of those there seems to be less blanket weed so maybe it might be that okay well maybe that's something I need to do do you do you do the stick method the twirly stick method with your pond to get the blanket weed out. Yeah, like, and then just... Uh, I'll just stick my hand in. Oh, do you? Oh, okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> different methods, different methods. Um, <laughs> we should probably get on with the rest of the show because there's loads to cram in. Um, yeah. Yeah, let's move on. As always, it's time for a bit of fun with our matter-of-fact challenge, which pictures you and me, Tom against one another to come up with the best fact in the chosen category. So what was it last month? Uh, last month, Hannah, it was most impressive plant. And you went with... I had the giant water lily, yeah, um, which I thought was incredibly impressive. Like when I read up about it, it had a cool name, uh, Amazonica Victoria, I think it was. Um, and that you could you could balance a small child on it, but um, Hannah, what did you go with? I went with the baobab tree. Right, and can you hear in my tone that I'm bitter about you going for a tree <laughs> because it's like an ultimate winner straight away. Like, blew my yeah. uh, water so, lily out of the water. No pun I intended. I am pleased to take the crown back, <laughs> as it were. I don't know what the yeah. score is now. Do you know what the score is? How many weeks, uh, well, uh, months we've we been doing it? Oh, yeah, I think, uh, well, this is episode six, I think, of this series. So yeah. I think I think it's 4-2. I think you've won twice. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Um, oh. But in terms of, I mean, this was pretty much a smash it out the park job from you, though. Like, it was, it was something like 80-20 to you in terms of percentages. Oh, so you did, a, you did a good job on picking, uh, picking, picking the tree. And it's, yeah, very cool. It's quite, I, it was a worthy opponent to a water lily. I can't stand up to a tree of, of, of that magnitude. So, well done. It's my job Thank to try you. and claw back for this month. And uh, we've, as I said, we've got loads to cram in to this episode. So, new challenge for this month, Anna. You need to fit your rationale for your chosen matter of fact into <laughs> 30 seconds. All right? And I'm going to time us if we can do this. And I wonder if we can actually do it. But um, we'll give it a go. So, Hannah, this month's Matter of Fact Challenge is... Best Animal Teamwork. Yes, it is. Uh, do you want to go first, actually, Hannah? I know I was going to go first. You want to go first, and I'll time you, and then you can time me. Okay, so... Wait, ready? Are you, t- are you timing me? Oh, yeah, oh, God, that's five seconds off. gone already. No. Okay, start Not again. Yet. Right, ready, here we go. <laughs> okay, start the timer, please. Go. So mine is the African wild dog or painted dog. Um, and the reason I chose this one is because they use such amazing teamwork to catch their prey. Um, so they live in um, groups called packs. Um, they live together and they can be up to 80% successful with their hunts, which is huge. Especially if you compare them to Five say, lions, for example, which are only successful with 10%. Very nice. That's bang on 30 seconds there. Well done. Oh, I had some really interesting stuff to say. Do you know, I, there is so much interesting stuff to say, <laughs> but um, you, you've got to save it. 
and I'm gonna have to say, Hannah, I'm pretty um, pretty mortified. Actually, this has not happened before on the Matter of Fact Challenge, but I too, when it comes to teamwork, uh, what did you call them? Africa, just African dogs. I call them African wild dogs, but they're also called painted dogs. Painted, painted dogs is how I know them. Painted dogs, but um, yeah, I like painted yeah, so dogs. They're amazing. I mean, I was reading about. I know we're supposed to be cutting down on time, and it's not happening, is it? Because we're both like fangirling and boying over painted dogs. But um, yeah, I mean, as well as sadly being like not very common anymore. Like they've got one percent of their population as they used to be. Yeah. Um, they they're pretty good at like helping one another within the pack as well like it's not just to do with the hunt is it they're quite um social yeah they they're very social and they have a a dominance hierarchy they have like alpha male and female who are the most dominant and then it uh, moves down from there but yeah they're very social and there's lots of um you know help from the younger ones in bringing up the pups um something i found out can i bring oh i just want to tell you this really interesting fact that um they will let you off sorry they um they work together before going off on a hunt they do what's called a rat what's called a rally so this is what the researchers who looked into it called it they called it a rally where they basically like rally each other up to get ready to go on a hunt and they found that that this certain um uh vocalization that they make which is <laughs> a rapid rapid uh, exhalation through the nose or a sneeze um the more of those that they did during the rally the more likely they were to go for a hunt ah yeah, yeah. pretty incredible now i um i'm disappointed but i'm gonna go with one of our well you can have more than 30 seconds if you want <laughs> I, I think that's cheating but thank you i i'm gonna go across to the insect family, to the invertebrates, and I'm going to go with the leafcutter ant. So leafcutter ants work together in their million, sometimes 10 million strong, uh, to move plant matter into parts of their underground nests in order to grow a special fungus that they eat. So this is something they hide in their burrows. Each ant is incredibly strong and can carry over 50 times their body weight while all whilst releasing pheromones from their glands on their bodies and this allows them to communicate and coordinate their work and there's even a fail-safe alarm scent that rallies the colony to fight off intruders oh not bad well within the time limit what do you reckon i'll, I'll let you i'll let you off as we we both had the same one Oh, thank you, Hannah. That's very kind of you. You might live to regret that. Who knows? <laughs> anyway, remember, it is up to you, wherever and however you're listening to Nature's a Hoot. You at home, you need to vote for which of our facts you think best fits the bill of best animal teamwork. So head over to our Instagram stories or our Twitter feed, both at Hawk Conservancy to vote. And we will, as ever, be revealing the winner of this month's Matter of Fact Challenge next time. Right, so, question time. What senses do birds of prey use in everyday life? So we talk a lot about this in our displays and demonstrations. And I know I have fallen victim to some common misconceptions really about bird of prey senses have you done the same in the past Hannah well I 
I would forgive you for that, Tom, because I don't think that they they were always misconceptions. Because you know, as research develops and you find stuff out about mm. birds or whatever, that um, things change, don't they? And I think you're probably referring to uh, the assumption that birds did, don't have a sense of smell, mm. um, which was a common misconception in the past, but now we do know that they do, or certainly some birds have a sense of smell and some birds have a very good sense of smell. Um, and yes. in fact, like our turkey vultures, for example, that's the, probably their predominant sense that they use to find food. Yeah, so I was I was looking at exactly the same thing when we were thinking about talking about this for this episode. Turkey vultures, and of course we fly uh, burdock mm. and to Benwick here, both turkey vultures, and we can see them in displays here. Yeah. Um, and they do seem to be able to have a sense of smell. Only I can only say that just by things that we've seen and, and witnessed okay. them doing, but they seem to be able to recognise us actually by a sense of smell on occasion, which is interesting. Um, but also reading up some of the the work that's been done around turkey vultures to establish just how good that sense of smell is. Um, so when we look at other species of birds that have a good sense of smell, uh, a kiwi, those little uh, flightless birds that go around probing in the in the ground, apparently a kiwi can smell earthworms through 15 centimetres of soil. Well, that's which really is interesting. Pretty, which is amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and a turkey vulture's sense of smell supposedly is more sensitive than that. Yeah. So, so yeah, highly sensitive sense of smell, which kind of makes sense, doesn't it? If you're, uh, <laughs> if you're a bird that eats things that are essentially decomposing. Yeah, exactly. And if you think about where they live as well, um, unlike the old world vultures, which live in sort of open woodland or savanna grassland where they get up on a thermal and they can see everything around them. Turkey vultures um, live, and black vultures live more in, well, black vultures live often in urban areas, don't they? But turkey vultures live in more forested areas. So in order to find carrion that's under the canopy, they're going to need more than just their sight to find that. Yeah, and this this has kind of gone backwards and forwards for many years, I think. Like there's been lots of schools of thought where it's like yeah a turkey vulture has a fantastic sense of smell and then when some of the studies came to try and work out how good it was very often people would use like the smelliest meat they could from a yeah. long distance away to try to get the vultures to come in and what they found was that that could never prove the point of turkey vultures having a good sense of smell and the reason i find super interesting because again it's a misconception about vultures which we bang on about all the time is that the turkey vultures are not interested in finding these smelly, massively decomposed carcasses mm. because, in fact, the reason their uh, their sense of smell needs to be so good is because they want to smell it as fresh as they possibly can. When it's fresh, um, yeah. Which I just find, yeah, mind-blowing that they're actually just smelling it just as it starts to decompose. Yeah. Um, yeah, Simon did some research into um, the sense of or olfaction, so smell, in raptors. And one of the experiments he did was a comparison between, um, I think it was Chimango caracaras um, and turkey vultures. So caracaras are also scavengers. Um, They do eat, you know, small insects and small invertebrates and things as well, and small mammals and little things that they can catch, but they do also scavenge. Um, And he found that 
because of that slight sort of dietary difference and the difference in their habitats and the fact that caracaras move around on the ground more um caracaras do use their sense of smell so he did find that they do use their sense of smell but they seem to use a combination of smell and sight whereas the turkey vultures use predominantly smell yeah and they i mean they're trying to smell for one particular thing as well in the wild like obviously the the gases that are that are coming from a newly deceased carcass and i'll just read you this little bit from a, a bit of research that i was doing we can put the the full article and the link in the the show notes or in the blog i think but um, apparently the, the answer came from an unlikely source um, Kenneth Steger who conducted this research in the 1960s was talking to engineers who looked after California gas pipelines and they told him that they could tell when there was a leak in the pipe because turkey vultures always congregated around it and it turns out that since the 1930s the company had added a very smelly substance known as mercaptan to gas to help humans detect leaks and it turns out that when an animal, such as a deer or a cow, dies, its body naturally gives off exactly the same oh. smell, the, the same um, compound. Oh, interesting. And that, so it makes sense. Yeah. So they were coming around these gas pipelines because they thought they could smell yeah. this, uh, this dead animal. Very interesting. So what about vision? What do, what do you know about vision? I'm sure you know a lot about raptor vision yes uh yeah good good eyesight eyes like a hawk eagle-eyed <laughs> all those sort of things um yeah exceptional vision i always thought although again talking to simon not always as good as we might think and it's quite individual to individual species yeah. and some that we work with on a regular basis i know he was telling me uh, birds like the harris hawk for example yeah. doesn't actually have that much better eyesight than us as a human being no um you know, whereas there are some species that, that do much better than us. And I'll, I'll kind of wait for Simon to explain it better than me, but he did some really extensive work with birds of prey yeah. to try to distinguish how far a bird can see yeah. um, by using different coloured lines that would kind of cross over. And that will all become clear when he explains because he's better than me. But So the, the biggest bubble I had burst partly from um, Simon, but also other people I've since spoke to, is that I was always told the fascinating fact that kestrels have the ability to see into the ultraviolet part oh, of the yeah. light spectrum in order to see uh, reflections from mouse and vole urine on the ground, which would make perfect sense. Um, this has since been disproved and is not true. Yeah, that's been debunked, hasn't it? So, yeah. so disappointing. Such a nice little fact, but not a it fact. A, <laughs> such a cool fact that, you know, I will hold my hands up and admit to, not recently, but admit to to uh, disseminating yeah. that. We did at the trust. In inverted commas, fact, for, for years. And I love telling people that. And there'll be people out there that now think that's true because I've told them. So if anyone's listening, oh, I've told that to, I'm so sorry, but... Cool fact, but fact debunked. But that's the thing is because that's what was assumed, and that's what they did think was how how they hunted. But then recently they've done more research and found out that it's not. <laughs> yeah, so. it, always a, it's always a shame when a nice one, a nice fact goes. <laughs> yeah. But all the more reason to be constantly keeping up with the the science and the research. Yeah. Uh, what about hearing then, Hannah? Um, I'll admit to not having very many. Much knowledge, much expertise on uh, raptor hearing. That's all right because, well, <laughs> yeah, well, I, I bet our listeners will probably have a good ballpark of which family group of birds of prey are really well renowned for their sense of hearing. And that's, of course, the owls. Um, the owls have just got 
enormous ears. Yeah. Like for their size, they're absolutely massive. Um, and again, I'm hoping we can link in the blog to a. There's a couple of pictures. Yeah, definitely. Um, of um, the ear openings of uh, of barn owls and uh, tengmalm owls as well that just show this amazing structure to their skull. Not only large ear openings, but also ear openings that are yeah. asymmetrically placed. So one is slightly higher on the skull than the other. And it's my understanding that that essentially means that the sound will hit one of the ears a fraction of a second before it hits the other ear. And that sort of two chances to hear, even though it would be like some millionths of a second difference between one or the other, that is kind of enough to gain almost X and Y coordinates to where the yeah. prey is. So highly sensitive, yes. And there's some species that can hear, you know, the scurry of a lemming underneath, yeah, you course. know, inches and inches of snow. Things like great grey owls oh, are a great example of that. <laughs> but also kind of locational, like it is yeah, pin, uh, perfect pinpoint. to kind of pinpoint the source of it. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah the fact that they can hear stuff underneath the snow is just <laughs> ridiculous isn't it <laughs> uh, yeah i mean you, you can see kind of where that evolutionary path has taken yeah. can't you that at some point there will that adaptation would not have existed and it's like well actually every year we're here is getting cold there's snowfall and our prey has evolved to dig underneath the snow yeah. we can't see it so they develop this incredible facial disc i mean if, if anybody at home listening has not seen a facial disc of a great grey owl just google great grey owl and you'll see they've got this they're basically mostly face and um and we always tell people here that if you want to know which of the owl senses they use most out of hearing and eyesight look for the facial disc if it's an owl that's got a big round face with these kind of stiff rim of feathers around that disc um then it's going to be using its sense of hearing it's a way of funneling the sound and for the school parties that come here, I always say it's a bit like cupping your hands behind your ears, but like to the max. <laughs> like, so they can angular, uh, sort of angle that facial disc to where they're listening, but also it just kind of like cups the sound and bounces it into their ears. They're just amazing. What about taste? Taste. Yeah, I did try to do a little bit of digging around taste, and there's not a lot of research, not especially with raptors that mm. I could find. Um, I found quite a lot about uh, things like hummingbirds that are trying to taste for nectar. Mm. So it's thought they have quite a, a sensitivity for uh, sweet tasting on the end of their tongue. Yeah. Um, also for uh, bitter berries and things that might be um, poisonous. Might be kind of poisonous or gone off um, for for other garden birds. But otherwise, not not a lot. There, w- there was a few studies that suggested that um, birds had absolutely no reaction to hot and spicy things like that didn't bother them at all they're quite happy to eat like jalapenos and things like that um but yeah not a huge amount so again if there's anybody out there that knows a little bit more about uh, birds sense of taste yeah i mean we, we we know that it must happen because or it must exist in some form one because we know more and more birds of prey have a sense of smell and yeah. we know that those two senses are quite closely linked but also the birds, when we feed birds here, they have, they have favourite foods, mm. and it, I can only I can only think, especially if it's like prepared for them and it's in smaller pieces. I can only think they're judging what they're eating by taste. Yeah. I mean, maybe by texture as well. Yeah. But um, there's sometimes I go and feed one of the birds, and they completely turn their beaks up at it. It's like <laughs> I don't really fancy that today. 
Um, and there's other things that's like that's their favourite food, and you know that they're they're going to be jumping for joy on the day that it's a I don't know a day where they're going to have a bit of fish because they like fish or yeah. chicken on another day. Um, they do have favourites, so that must be taste must come into that surely. Yeah, yeah, taste and or texture, like you said. But I I would have thought there must be something you sh- could ask. Um, I'm sure Simon will have something to say because if it's connected the same way it is in humans the sense of smell and sense of taste. Most birds have a functional, what's called an olfactory bulb, which is what they smell with. And I'm sure that's linked. Yeah, I'm sure that's linked to taste. So you would think that they must have some sort of sense of taste. Yeah, but you know, like with all these things, science ongoing, we we don't have all the answers just yet. <laughs> or maybe I'm just not very good at finding them. But uh, yeah, sense of taste was very much lacking in my research for today, I'm afraid. Yeah, so I should just quickly talk about the research we've actually done, because we have done some uh, research on um, eye, well, visual fields, so eyesight in um, yes. vultures, where we did some measurements with some of the captive birds this was a few years ago, um, to compare their sort of binocular vision and their binoc- the field of vision that they have, um, to compare between gyps vultures, so the griffin vulture um, and the white-backed vultures, and white-headed vultures, so the comparison between the two. Um, because we know that um, we've observed white-headed vultures hunting, um, so it's likely that they would have some difference in their eyesight because obviously hunting birds have a different sort of visual field in terms of what they're the way that they're looking for food compared to scavenging birds and they did find that um the white-headed vulture has a visual field more similar to a hunting raptor rather than a vulture which is quite interesting um their binocular field is a bit bigger than a gyps vulture um but also in a set well a related separate study we did find that um, the sort of vision that the gyps vultures have, where they have that scanning vision, where they where they're looking for um, carrion, does actually come with some threats because the way that they fly and the way that they scan and look down, it means that they can't always see directly in front of them. Yeah, and why would you be looking where you're going? Yeah. Like if you're like soaring high in the yeah, air, exactly. you're not going to bash into you anything. You wouldn't think you? that there'd be anything to bash into, but this is a consideration for things like wind turbines. So this oh, might yeah, be why they're um, susceptible to getting smashed into wind turbines. Is because when they're yeah. flying and looking down, they've got this huge uh, field of vision below them, looking for um, carrion to scavenge, but not directly in front of them. So it means that they can crash into things yeah yeah and we that is often the thing isn't it when you see this footage and it's like heartbreaking footage of birds of prey especially vultures having that impact with the the blades of a wind turbine it just it's horrible and horrible to think about but so often i'm sure you know people listening as well perhaps the same thing it's massive and white like how do you miss it yeah but it really is that if 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 and that vulture is going to be focused on finding food below them yeah. and everything about their adaptation is to do that, looking up towards where they're going is kind of pointless. It doesn't matter where you're going so long as you're finding food. Yeah, exactly. Suddenly this great big man-made structure yeah. comes along and they're fast. They look like they're moving slow, but there's no way a vulture of, of that size could get out of the way. Yeah, they're there? way above the tree line, aren't they? So they wouldn't need to look once they're up on a thermal or, yeah, or up to moving yeah. across the landscape. what a shame. 
Well, and we can yeah. we can link to that research, can't we, through the blog? Yeah. So if people want to read a little bit indeed. more of that uh, that study that was done with a few different species of vultures, they can you can uh, you can delve into that a little bit more if you'd like to. Um, so we wanted to dig a little deeper into the science of understanding how well birds of prey use their senses. And so I caught up with Simon Poitier about his research into diurnal raptors and their senses. Okay, so Simon, thank you so much for uh, coming on to Nature's a Hoot to talk to us. It's really, really nice to have you. Uh, how are things where you are? Where in the world are you actually at the moment? Uh, so not, not the best question. I'm at the moment unemployed uh, because I stopped my, I finished my contract uh, from Lund University in Sweden um, this year in March, something like that. And because of the COVID situation, funding mm. uh, I had to head for another contract in France stops. So we need to wait a bit. It, it will take longer than we thought before the I'm still working, uh, but with with no money uh, to do my research. But I, I, I have done a lot of research this last month, so that does not change anything for me, at least for my full time job as a researcher. So you in France at the moment? I'm I'm in France, but even if uh, 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 when I was working for Sweden uh, for different reasons, I was working from France. Um, Mostly because falconry is forbidden in Sweden, and, and okay. so if I have to to study uh, rattles, I have to study rattles elsewhere, and so I, right. I just because I came from France. So are you? So is that how you started out? Kind of having an interest in birds of prey was through kind of working with them one to one through falconry. Uh, so uh, since my early childhood, uh, I mean, uh, my father is a falconer uh, since 40 years now. And so I, I was born in a falconry environment. And so, yeah, I, I, I was in love of birds. When I was young, I wanted to be a professional of seabirds, like like seagulls, only seagull. I wanted to work only with seagull. <laughs> but I've seen that it's not possible. And so after... Uh, so I did my study um, uh, in different places in France, but I didn't want, uh, when I was at the university, I didn't want to work on rattles. Uh, so I decided to work on fishes. Uh, it was good. Uh, but then someone from Montpellier asked me whether I wanted to do a PhD on, on vultures. And I started to be back to, to rattles world. So this is all I came from. Fantastic. And what, what were you doing? What was the PhD involving with, with vultures? Uh, so I didn't get this PhD. Uh, it was on oh. uh, vulture, <laughs> no problem. It was on vulture <laughs> feeding. Uh, it was to see whether um, non-natural feeding has an impact on vulture population in France. Okay. I did not get it, but um, after that, we discussed with that guy and another. So that guy is Olivier Durier, was a good scientist on vulture and we discussed with another one uh, who is called Francesco Bonadonna he is working on bird olfaction and since that we developed a PhD project for me uh, on both uh, vision and olfaction in raptors and so I started my PhD uh, on that uh, in 2013 I think so something like that yeah so this is what we've been talking about uh, on this particular episode is all about 
Birds of Prey's kind of understanding of the world through their senses, and that's kind of your area of expertise, would you say? Hope so. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I hope I'm literally expertise on that. Uh, so I must really work on, on vision. Uh, so yeah, I, I, during my PhD, I've worked on both sense, so vision and olfaction. But since I am a postdoc, uh, so since four years right now, I just decided to work on vision. It's really, really hard to work on olfaction because you need to control something that you can't see for experimental reasons. And so it's really hard, but in the meantime, really, really interesting. So uh, I decided for now to stop a bit working on olfaction and concentrate mainly on visions. So obviously before the, the situation with COVID and everything kind of through lots of spanners in the works for everybody. I remember the first time we met was, I didn't know you were in the audience at the time for one of our flying displays. And we were talking about turkey vultures and how their sense of smell can help them in finding their food. And I was definitely 100% under the understanding that, that vultures like those, new world vultures were the only ones to have a sense of smell in the raptor world. And that, that I think that was the understanding for lots of people. And that's not, actually that true is it um so um most of people uh, except for new world virtues as you said we all believe that they can use sense of smell but most of people even scientists believe like 30 years ago that bird cannot smell that most bird cannot smell because they never sniff each other except one species the crested oclets uh, if i remember correctly and they never sn sniff each other so as a, uh, as a mammals would say, if you want to use olfaction, you need to sniff, and, sure. uh, like I did. And, and so <laughs> <laughs> for the bird, it's not true. And since that, since this period, some people started to work on bird olfaction, mostly on seabirds, and they've shown crazy things on bird olfactions. Like some seabirds can smell the colony at more than 800 kilometers, which is, wow. which is crazy, crazy. And so I decided to study a bit rattles because except the new world virtue, they never been studied before um, when I started my PhD. And I've read some, 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 some papers that were wondering whether they can use olfaction like old world virtues in Nepal, whether they can use olfaction. And so I've made some small experiments to prove that. And so for, for instance, the car car, that you have in your conservancy, they can use olfaction to, to smell their food. So I, I would say that most bird species can use olfaction. We just need to find a good way to prove that. Definitely, it's fascinating. And it's, it's actually quite nice that there are things that are still there to be explored. There's nothing that's kind of still set in stone that we know for sure. There's loads to still know about these birds, isn't there? Yeah. A lot, a lot of things are still to explore in birds and mostly rattles because we all believe that rattles have a crazy eyesight and because they will have a crazy eyesight, they should have less olfactory ability. So I was going to talk to you about this, actually, because we always say, you know, someone's got eyes like a hawk or they're eagle eyed. And we assume that all birds of prey, maybe sometimes except the owls, I guess, but that most birds of prey have got fantastic eyesight and a lot of your work has been involved in this. Is it true to say that someone who has eyes like an eagle has amazing eyesight? Um, partially, I would say, <laughs> partially. Um, 
Yeah, I, w when I did my falconry display too, I was seeing the same uh, for years. And when I started to work on that, I've seen that before my PhD, only 10 species has been, have been studied so far. Right. I think that we have more than 300, 400 raptor species. So it, it's very, very little. And so to date, I think right now we have like almost 20 species studied so far. Right. And it, it, it is true that some species have a fantastic eyesight, like the wedge-tailed eagle, which is similar to the golden eagle. Uh, they can see in between two or three times at longer distance than we can, for instance. So it's it's really good. But some of the species like the car car, for instance, because they all feed on the ground, they don't fly at high altitude, they feed on the ground, they do not need to see at long distance. So they have a, a poorer uh, eyesight than we have. I would say it depends on the foraging ecology and on the ecology of the animals in general. If you don't need to see at long distance, why you would uh, spend a lot of energy on that. Mm. And a lot of that brain space as well to compute all the information. Yeah. So I remember you, I remember you telling me about um, Harris hawks, which is a species that, you know, people who work and fly birds of prey, it's a species that people will be familiar with and probably people listening will have seen a Harris hawk in a bird of prey flying display before. And certainly I always thought they had fantastic vision and have they got a vision similar to our own as, as humans? Uh, so I, I, I work a lot on this species because it's very simple to work on, on, on them. Um, and so uh, if we consider the visual acuity, so how far you can see for very high contrast uh, pattern. So meaning like if you look, let's say that they are searching for, for black mouse on a white background. So it's very high contrast. So the visual acuity is really similar to that of human. So it's really interesting because you can compare the RSS oak with the human visual system, and then you can look at different uh, other visual ability. So yeah, they, they have similar visual acuity than we, we, we do. And how are you able to study these things? You said about obviously the olfactory um, study is very difficult because it's you're trying to control certain um, aspects of your study on something that you cannot see. How do you do that with with visual acuity? So there is, there are, sorry, two methods, I would say. Uh, so the one method is to have a dead animal and to take off the eye and to count every cells in the eyes, like every photoreceptors. Uh, I'm not using that method, I'm using the behavioral method. So I train my birds to go to a specific pattern on, on, on a screen, on a monitor. So you have two monitors, one monitor is showing a uniform gray and one monitor is showing, sorry, uh, a pattern like uh, stripes. So black and white stripes. And I try to teach the bird to go to the uniform gray, meaning that if they fly to the uniform gray, they get a reward. And if they fly to the other one, the stripes, they do not get a reward. And at once they would have learned, they, they should learn, sorry, to go to the uniform gray. And I, if I've learned that uh, pattern, I change the size of the bars. And at a specific distance, you can't make the difference between the gray and the bars and the greeting. So I try to understand at which bars size, they cannot make the difference between the gray and the greeting. 
So it looks simple, but it takes time. So with RSS, it's okay. It takes like a month to teach them. So you have to work every day with them and it takes a month. But I've tried with many, many species and like the virtues, <laughs> they, they just do not get it. No way. I think that for the, the griffin vulture, for instance, I've done 2000 trials and they did not get it. They did not get that gray means food. Wow. Wow. See, I would have always been under the impression that vultures were super smart like that. Again, that's always, always thought about it. I don't know. That's, um, yeah, that is interesting. They, they just do not care of the, 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 the monitor. That was my feeling when I done the, when I've ran the experiment is that you just do not care of the monitors. You just want to have food and if right. they make a mistake, no problem. I just made a mistake. Wow. Wow. But if you compare to pigeon, it takes two weeks. Wow. Smart, smart pigeons. <laughs> exactly. Um, so if, if we uh, can better understand uh, what a bird of prey's vision is like, are there any kind of practical applications in terms of looking after species that will help, you know, help us to conserve species if we have an understanding of how these birds can understand the world? I think it's a good question. Uh, when I, so I have often this question, uh, when I try to answer, I first say that it's also important to have new knowledge of the species, even if there is no conservation um, uh, after, it's really important to, new, to know all the species behave and all they can perceive the world. But in terms of con conservation program, uh, so I am working at the moment with uh, the problem of uh, wind farm collision with birds. And so studying the visual system is really important in that um, case because we do not understand or they can't see that wind farm, like the, the, the blades, or why they can't see the blades. It's very easy to see for us. So we are studying the, the visual system of different species and mostly raptors because they often collide with those uh, human devices. Mm. And so, yeah, in terms of conservation, it's really important in that case. So I was watching, a, there's a great talk that you were doing uh, at Toulouse Museum. Um, oh, they, you they, watched they, it in French, sorry. I watched it in French. I will admit, I watched it with uh, auto-generated English subtitles. <laughs> Uh, but great talk, and actually, if anybody um, wants to have a look, we'll put it in the uh, in the show notes as well. But um, there was an incredible part where you were uh, away from the kind of understanding of bird of prey senses, but actually how we understand what a bird of prey is. Because again, it's a question we get asked a lot here: like, how do we know what is a bird of prey? And we teach school groups and education groups. We say it's a bird that catches and kills with its talons or has got forward-facing eyes or all of these different understandings and definitions of birds of prey what is your understanding of what a bird of prey is you're shaking your head <laughs> yeah yeah because i'm sorry i have no answer i have no answer so it's it's really um strange because we all we all know when you are looking a bird in the wild we all know what is a bird in the wild we, yeah. we don't know what is a bird of prey if it's a bird of prey or not or not right if, if you see an eagle you can say it's a bird of prey yes in terms of scientific uh classification we don't have really a lot of clue what is a bird of prey because you can look at the ecology as i say the catch with talents that's not true for vultures for instance yes and uh, we often say that they eat meat 
that's not true for the palmnut vulture who hit like 90% of palmnut fruits in the wild. So that's, that's really hard. And also in terms of genetic, so phylogeny, phylogeny is the classification of birds by the genetic. It's also, there is no herd of prey group. I mean, because for instance, falcons, they are closer to parrots than to eagle or elk or buzzards or even owl. So, so it's so hard, but there is a new paper uh, in 2019 from uh, Chris McClough uh, and he tried to classify bird of prey and he made a very good paper. So we can have a clue what is the bird of prey and his new classifications is based on genetic and ecology. And he was saying that Seriyama, they, right now they belong to bird of prey. So it's really hard. We don't have a good definition. So you're saying that genet genetically, birds of prey across the board are not necessarily related, not closely related as we'd expect them to be. They are re-spread, re-spread. I mean, mostly falcons are spread from the other ones because even a, an eagle is closer to a, an owl than a falcon, which is a nonsense from ecology. Yeah. But, but this yes. is the case from genetics. So it's really hard to know what is a bird of prey. So I'm sorry. And when I'm speaking with my colleague, from Montpellier, for instance, they say, you can't say rattle. It means nothing. You have to stop to use the term of rattles. But in the meantime, when you use rattles, everyone knows what you want to say. Yeah, what? Are, yeah, we're going to have to develop new language, aren't we, to understand what these things are? Exactly, but hard, really hard. Um, so we often try to find ways to encourage young people to kind of get involved in you know, studying birds of prey and, and getting involved in wildlife conservation and research. What sort of advice would you give to young people to getting involved in the sort of thing that you've been, you've been doing? Okay. I think the first part is to be, to have a passion. I mean, you, if you want to work on bird of prey, you need to be, I mean, you have, you need to have a passion for bird of prey. So that's mm. the first point. And I think that's my feeling because I'm also a falconer, as you know, a falconer, as you know. And when I started to do my PhD, it was really hard because most ornithologists didn't want to work with falconer. And since I've done my PhD, and thanks to my PhD supervisor, Olivier Durier, the two worlds, they are starting to collaborate in France. Wow. And I think it's really, really important when you want to be a biologist on if you want to work on conservation on, on every animals, to work with different person, not only scientists, not only falconers, but we should all work together. So that would be my main advice is that we have different way of working on rattles. You make fly your birds, you have a very good uh, commentary on your birds and you explain a lot of things at your conservancy to people. And that's a really, really important point because as, as a biologist, we just, we, we, we not just, but we are doing experiments. We publish this experiment, but except scientists, no one is reading it. So if we want to share the knowledge, we need the falconer. So I would say we need to do a very, if you want to work on conservation on birds of prey, we need to all work together. There seems like there's quite a lot of angles as well to come in from. So either having a that's that starting passion in 
the sciences in general or having it starting in an understanding of birds of prey and that kind of one-to-one understanding of the animals that you want to work with um yeah it can come from both ways um so so you said you've got a potential new projects happening in the pipeline what what's next for you all all being well uh yeah 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 if if the covid situation is getting better which i'm afraid a bit of because we all get vaccinated and it does not change so much the situation yeah uh, situation and I am vaccinated so I have no problem with that um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the the next step will be so I have two potential um, fundings that will arrive one is working on um, multimodality on bird sense so because I used to work on vision and on all factions separately but we know that in a while it's not working like that you use both sense in the meantime to have an accurate response to every specific uh, environmental condition. And so I want to combine olfaction, vision, and audition uh, in bird of prey, because we know very little on, on hearing and bird of prey, except for owls. And the other project is more a conservation project, is to work on bird collision with the, the wind farm and to try to find a solution to uh, so I have a PhD student at the moment that uh, she is working on uh, on um, vision to see the contrast sensitivity of birds, uh, whether it can explain collision. But in the meantime, you need to afraid the birds from the from the 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 wind farm. Sorry, and so if you want to do that, you need to find the good um, the good repellent system uh, on the wind farm to avoid collision. So I want to try a good repellent system using multimodality so hearing vision olfaction i i just need to find a good one fantastic it all sounds really exciting um thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us someone it's so so lovely to hear hear from you um and we were hoping to do this interview in person weren't we when you were going to come and visit again um unfortunately it's not happened for now but um we'd love to welcome you back in the future you know that I will because it's at the Oakland Seventy. I discovered this place uh, thanks to Rattle, the Kruger, the Rattle um, Research Rattles Foundation. Sorry, uh, the conference that we I was in the Kruger Park in South Africa, and I've met uh, some person from the Oakland Seventy. And I said I have to be there. Um, and when I've been there, I really appreciate the way you you behave with the birds, and mostly because you you do. You are doing a very transversal um, way of uh, working with bird prey, doing research, doing um, display, and I really, really appreciate the display you've done. So, congrats for that, and be sure that I will come back and with some falconers from France and some researcher because I want them to see that. A big thank you to Simon for coming on our podcast. That was certainly a really interesting chat. Um, Tom, you probably found out some new information there, I should think. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, what an in- interesting guy and someone that has, you know, a great working relationship with birds as well. So we could kind of, um, we could yeah. bond over our shared love of, of working one-to-one with birds. Um, but yeah, what, what amazing research he's done. And it's kind of paving the way to a, 
a greater understanding of of what we already know about birds of prey and their senses so yeah i had a lot of fun talking to to simon so i wanted to just pick up on something hannah which uh is with my events manager hat on at this point um, i'd just like to mention that we're looking forward to our african sunset safari evenings over the next few weeks we've done a couple already um but i just wanted to say there's a few tickets left for anyone who fancies an evening out on the savannah arena you'll be surrounded by the most incredible african birds of prey it's Basically, it's like going on safari to Africa without actually having to leave the country, which is very useful at the moment, isn't it? Well, that sounds amazing. Um, yeah, so visiting us for events is a really great way to support our work. Um, and of course, you get an unforgettable evening. Uh, it's a quick reminder as well that our matter-of-fact challenge is all good to go. And you can vote for either Hannah or, of course, you can vote for me. And it'll all be there on our Instagram stories or find our poll on our Twitter feed. And it's also worth mentioning that it really helps us if those that are listening to us leave a review, just like this one. I, I'm liking this part of the show, reading out a little review. I love um, reviews. Yes. Um, this one has come from uh, somebody with a username, Bally703, and it's via uh, Apple Podcasts, uh, and came from Australia. Amazing. The review says, excellent. A lovely podcast. I'm an expat living in Australia and it keeps me in touch with the wildlife and countryside of the UK. I especially Aww. enjoyed the episode with the children sending their recordings in. Yes, that was uh, oh, back in January, so wasn't nice. it? That was really nice. Yeah. Yeah, that was a great episode. I loved that episode as well. It was really funny. Yeah, it was lovely. It was really, really nice. And uh, if you're sitting there listening and you haven't left a review, you're more than welcome to and we'll do our best to uh to to read them out if we get any new ones between between now and then uh, so thank you bally 703 lovely to hear from you and i hope you're all right down under <laughs> thank you so much for joining us if you've enjoyed this episode there's loads more where that came from so don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss out if you'd like to know more about anything we've talked about in today's show then head over to our social media pages where you'll find our blog that accompanies this podcast and loads more besides. We are at Hawk Conservancy on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and YouTube. So next month, we'll be taking you all along with us on a day in the life of uh, me, a member of the Conservation Research Department. Actually, Tom, I've got a new uh, title. What? Yeah. Hang on, this is a podcast exclusive here. Nature's a hoot exclusive. Hannah's got a new title. Who are you then? Um, so my new title is... Um, it's a little bit of a mouthful. Uh, I'm the Conservation and Communications Coordinator. Ooh. Or three Cs for short. The triple C. Conservation yeah, triple C. and Communications Coordinator, Hannah Shaw. We're going to be going on a day in the life with you. Yeah, next we, month. Are we not doing a day in the life of you? Oh, was it? Yeah, um, one... yeah. I mean, we could go on a day. Let, tell you what, let's leave it to be I seen. That was the idea. Shall we both? Well, yes. At a later date, you can come on a day in life with me. But you're busy being conservation and communications um, coordinator now. <laughs> I've still got my old title, General Dog's Body. Really. Yeah. Um, so I can come with you for this day in the life. I mean, if you have to. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but from Hannah and I, it's goodbye until next time. We'll see you next month. See you then. Bye. Bye.